Life Audio. Paul is writing from Corinth to Rome, and he sends the letter to the Romans with a woman named Phoebe. And he says a few things about her. He says she's a benefactor, which means she's a powerful supporter of others. It also says she was a diakonos. Sometimes we translate that deacon. It can also be translated minister, and it means leader, servant leader, but it means leader. She was someone that we think was really important to Paul. He trusted her. I'm Jody Nisnik, and you're listening to So Much More. And after a quick word from our sponsors, my guest, Nijay Gupta, and I will be back to talk about how women led, taught, and ministered in the early church. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Dr. Nijay Gupta is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. Previously, he was a professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary, where he oversaw a master's thesis program and advised doctoral students. He is the author of the book, Worship That Makes Sense to Paul and Prepare, Succeed, Advance, a guidebook for getting a PhD in biblical studies and beyond, along with Bible commentaries, and over a dozen academic articles in theological journals. And his newest book, which we are going to talk about today, which is called Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church. Well, Nijay, thank you so much for making some space to talk with us today. I really loved your book, and I am really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Jody. Good to be with you. Well, I'd love to just start with You telling us a little bit about your journey and how you came to write a book about women in Scripture. Sure. Glad to talk about that. I'll keep it short and you can follow up with other comments and questions. I was born and raised in North Central Ohio near Cleveland, and I actually grew up in a Hindu household. My parents are Hindu. I became a Christian as a teenager in high school. And I went to a very traditional church. I didn't think anything of it. We had male pastors, male elders, kind of mostly men up front. And I just, I never really studied the issues about men and women back then. I was just, you know, a teenager busy with other things. But I think I just assumed this is what the Bible says. It's just the culture that scripture reflects. And it's meant to be a challenge maybe to modern culture in many ways. And it was, it worked. I didn't, nobody complained about it as far as I could tell. Nobody seemed bothered by it. Went to college. I was involved at Miami University of Ohio. I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. Women were more involved in ministry, but there was kind of these 
dividing lines that a woman could only do so much. And then men had to be kind of at the very top. It wasn't in your face. It wasn't oppressive in terms of, you know, women couldn't, you know, there was no silence order or anything like that. But I just, again, I took it for granted, didn't really come up, didn't really question it. And then I went to seminary and this was the era when John Piper was talking a lot about women in the church, Wayne Grudem and others. And so uh, I was really interested in that conversation. And I went to seminary and for the first time I was in a diverse environment with different viewpoints. And some of the assumptions I had started to be challenged. So, for example, I'd really always seen the Bible as a man's story. The patriarchs are men. The priests are men. The kings are men. Most of the prophets are men. Jesus is a man. The disciples are men. The apostles are men. Men are in leadership. Men wrote the Bible. I, you get you get all of this, and it's like, okay, women are bad, but they have their place at home, or they have their place in supportive roles. And over over seminary, I started to encounter other traditions, other denominations that still love the Bible, love Jesus, want to be faithful to Scripture, want to be faithful to the early church. And I started to kind of get mixed messages. On the one hand, you have this message from the Bible about wives being submissive. And on the other hand, you have a lot of independent women in leadership. We could talk about leaders like Deborah. We have people like Mary, the mother of Jesus. What's interesting is God, you know, God sees it fit to send Jesus at just the right time, right? Galatians 4, you know, when the time had come, the right time, he sent Uh his son, born of a virgin, right? And yet God must have already known that Joseph was going to die or disappear. And she ends up being the dominant parent, uh, raising the Messiah. I mean, let's say he doesn't start his ministry till he's 28, 29, 30. There's like 10 years, let's say, where Mary is trying to help him figure out what's going on and how to get his ministry started. I think about my mom and the way she's taking care of me. And I think about how I'm trying to take care of my kids. And those years are really important. (laughs) My kids are younger, but those years are really important. So over seminary, I learned Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, the languages of scripture. And I started to realize things aren't as simple as they seem. And we, in my whole book, the whole point of my book is we sometimes say, where can women be and what can they do? But when we actually read the Bible, we see that women are in all the wrong places. They're out and about doing public ministry. They're outside the home. They are traveling with Jesus. They are proclaiming the resurrection to the male disciples. They're out and about independently doing things that we would call ministry and ministry leadership. And so fast forward 10, 15 years later, and I decided I got to write a book on this. So I did. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you did. There's a lot of literature out there already, and I've read a lot of it, especially when I was in seminary. I think I've read thousands of pages on this topic. Literally, I'm not over-exaggerating. And But your book is different in that you are helping us see from, well, what I would say a really positive way versus attacking the prohibition passages and tearing these like few passages down and pointing out either inconsistencies or nuances or questions, big questions that we have about some of these quote unquote, very clear passages. You actually went at this a little different way and 
you showed us women. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just talk about a few of those. Like you mentioned Deborah. Start with Deborah because I've always loved Deborah. Mm-hmm. She did all the things she shouldn't have done. Yeah, I even though it's a book primarily about women in the early church, women in the New Testament, I also am a huge fan of Deborah from the Old Testament. And I feel like she she plays an important role for me of defying stereotypes that are sometimes thrown around in the church about women. Women are too emotional. Women are gullible. Women are sensitive. Women are too invested in relationships. They can't make hard decisions. You know, all of these things. And what's interesting about Deborah is, and I'll just give a real brief overview. The book of Judges in the Old Testament comes after Joshua. Israel's been given the law. They've been freed from Egypt, given the law, and they're supposed to go into the land of Canaan and take over and establish the temple and the kingdom. And Judges is this really dark period. I like to refer to it with my students as the zombie apocalypse of the Old (laughs) Testament because it's like the lowest of low times. You know, judge the book of Judges says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No one did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This was a pretty dark period of Israel's history. And God raises up these temporary leaders, but even as temporary leaders, they are the leaders of Israel. And so you have Gideon, famous for the Gideon's Bible, right? You have Samson, who's this Herculean figure. And then you have Deborah. These are the three judges given extensive treatment. And Deborah is clearly the most righteous of the three, right? Gideon's kind of cowardly. Samson is just selfish, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Breaks, breaks all, he takes a Nazarite vow and breaks all the rules. And Deborah is not only a judge, meaning she is a warrior hero of Israel, but she's also an actual judge. She judges kind of court cases and she's a prophet. So when you put those three together, she is the executive leader, she's the spiritual leader, and she's in some ways kind of a military advisor. And there's a song about her. So she defies all these stereotypes that we might have. And even people in the ancient world had about women as women need to be sweet and loyal and charming. I don't know what Deborah was in those categories, but what she comes across as heroic, faithful, resilient, wise. I mean, it goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And so when we say, oh, you know, women can do a lot of good things, supportive roles, Deborah teaches us women can do great things in executive roles as well. And you might say, oh, it's not the church. Israel didn't think in terms of sacred and secular. Because it's God's law and God's world, everything is sacred. If you have a leader in Israel like that, you know, for example, Judges 5 refers to her as a mother over Israel. That means she is the guardian and protector of all of Israel, all of Israel's concerns. And she institutes these 40 years of peace, which is the way that Judges says God has used her to bring peace to the people. Yeah. And I love, there's so much to love about Deborah. We're going to pause here for a quick break and then we'll be right back. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. 
Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I'd love to let's fast forward a little bit and let's talk about some of these women, especially maybe some of the lesser known women that maybe we haven't noticed before and what they teach us about some of the roles that women held in the New Testament church. Yeah, probably the first place that I want to direct people, which I do in my book, is Romans 16. The funny thing about Romans 16 is if you've ever done a Bible study in Romans, you're pretty much exhausted by the time you get to chapter 12. (laughs) You got all the stuff about Adam and Eve or Adam and Christ in chapter 5, 6, 7, 8. You got buried with Christ. You got stuff about the law in chapter 7. You have all the stuff about Israel in 9 through 11. So a lot of people don't make it to chapter 16. And even when they do, it's easy to just think of it as kind of the end credits of a movie because Paul mm-hmm. lists a bunch of names and it, it's often labeled final greetings. But it's actually more than that. And it's hard to know that unless you understand the times. So imagine a thousand years from now, you look up on whatever Wikipedia is a thousand years from now, and you're looking up the Oscars, right? And imagine it just says, um, for three hours, names are read and metal objects are passed out. That is what's going on, but that doesn't actually tell you (laughs) the importance of the Oscars. Why are people watching this for three hours? They're watching it because it's a celebration of these people and their accomplishments. That's what Romans 16 is. It's mm-hmm. a celebration. It's a point in these people as role models, right? And they're, and what they've done for the Lord. We, you might have in your church a pastoral appreciation week where you're going to read their names out and say, thank you for your ministry. Thank you for doing this work. In many ways, that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, greet these people, meaning give them a big hug because they've worked hard in ministry. Mm-hmm. Right. Give him a 10 buck Starbucks card. You know what I mean? Like, is he, this is the kind of thing he's saying. And what's interesting, Jody, about this list is just how diverse it is. Based on the names of the list, we think that some of them are Jews and some of them are Gentiles. Based on the names of the list, we think that some of them are elites, meaning they're kind of upper crust, upper class people. And we think some of them are either slaves or former slaves. And we know that some of them are men and some of them are women. About a third of the list of on the of the names on the list are women. And the funny thing is, a casual reader of the Bible is not going to know which ones. Of, right. I even have to look it up sometimes. Like Tryphena and Tryphosa are women, probably sisters. Persis is a woman. Some of them are unnamed, you know, like the mother of Rufus, sister of mm-hmm. Nereus. And some of them are clear to us, like Mary, you know, Mary of Rome. And there are people that you might be familiar with, like Priscilla, 
and Phoebe and Junia. Those are kind of the biggies that we can talk about. But the question is, why does Paul list all these names of people? Because if you go to other letters, he might list one or two people, but most of the time he doesn't list anybody's names. He says, greet the believers there. And, and my friends here send you greetings. He doesn't really list names. Why does he do that? One scholar has this theory, which I actually buy into, that Paul is actually wanting to showcase diversity of leadership, not for the sake of diversity or some kind of initiative, but to say, we want to encourage a many-colored kingdom because all the peoples of all kinds are blessed by God in the church and in ministry. And the kind of diversity we see there, men and women, young and old, Jew and Gentile, slave or free, are in that list. So let's just mention a couple women and why they're important. So let's talk about Phoebe. Paul is writing from Corinth to Rome, and he sends the letter to the Romans with a woman named Phoebe. And he says a few things about her. He says she's a benefactor, which means she's a powerful supporter of others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all know those kinds of people, right, in our church. Mm-hmm. When I, Growing up, the church I went to growing up, the mayor went to our church, and he's a powerful supporter of other people. We had physicians, you know, surgeons that went to our church. They're powerful supporter of other people. And Phoebe was someone like that. It also says she was a diakonos. Sometimes we translate that deacon. It can also be translated minister and it means leaders, servant Mm -hmm. leader, but it means leader. She was someone that we think was really important to Paul. He trusted her. There wasn't a postal service back then. You couldn't just pop it in the mail. There was no, you know, UPS. (laughs) So you sent it with a trusted colleague. And we know that Paul sent it with close ministry colleagues like Epaphroditus or Timothy or others. And so Phoebe seems to be not just a letter carrier, that doesn't really represent what she's doing, but an emissary or an ambassador on behalf of Paul. I use the language of proxy. So she's going to go there. She's going to stay for a while. So she's going to be the person that she might read the letter out loud. We're not sure. She's going to be the person that if they have questions about Romans and trust me, they're going to have questions about right. Romans. <laughs> going to be the most natural person. If they say, hey, when you go back, tell Paul this, right? They're going to do that. They're going to, they're going to talk to her about that. She's very important. We could stop there or we could talk about Junia. Yeah, tell us about Junia because I think she's obviously very important as well. Junia is really important and she only gets one or two verses in scripture, but she is someone you could create a whole documentary around because it's so <laughs> fascinating. We can skip over some of the controversy if you can come back to it later if you want. But there, you know, Paul mentions two people in Romans 16, 7. He mentions Andronicus and Junia. Greet Andronicus and Junia. And he says a few things about them that are actually really important if we pay attention. One is, he says, they're older in the faith than me. That means they became Christian before Paul Paul became a Christian pretty early, (laughs) right? Right? If some people have called him the founder of Christianity, then they they became Christian pretty early. So if he became a Christian, let's say in 32, 33, you know, they're representing perhaps the earliest strand, earliest generation Mm. of Christian leadership. That in and itself is fascinating. Other than the disciples, we don't have a lot of named people in that category. So I would have, I would think that Paul can, by mentioning that, I would consider that kind of Paul's heroes. I mean, I'm Indian. I like to say this would be his auntie and uncle, you know, cause we call 
mm-hmm. older people, auntie and uncle. I think he would look at them that way. He says they're Jewish, which again testifies to that. Some of the early church writers in the patristic period, second, third, fourth century, one of them says that they may have been sent out with the 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10, I think. It's very possible because one of the things that Paul says is they are prominent among the apostles. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of controversy there. Some translations will say they're prominent to the apostles, meaning they're not apostles. Some translations say they're prominent as apostles. I think given they're older in the faith than Paul, given they're Jewish, given that Paul says they have been in prison for the gospel, which is one of the highest honors, it, I can't imagine them being prominent to the apostles and not prominent as apostles, but I think prominent as apostles is the most to me natural reading of the Greek text. And so what does that mean? Because they're not in the 12, right? Right. You have Paul who's added to the 12, but I think there was actually an apostolic community because Barnabas, for example, is referred to as an apostle. So I think it's really this leadership community that was sent out to the world to spread the gospel. And what's amazing is that Junia is a part of that group and not only a part of it, she's highly commended in it. So people say, oh, can women be pastors? Can women be elders? Can women be teachers? You know, can women do this? Can women do that? My response, if, if you have a Deborah and you have a Junia, I think to me that question is answered. But if not, at the very least, we have to say we, men and women should be looking up to these great, faithful, resilient, hardworking heroes like Junia. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. And the, controversy that you're alluding to is that for maybe a couple hundred years, we passed her off as a man. (laughs) And we've come back to realize that that is not true. She is absolutely a woman. There is no male form of her name that we see anywhere in in all antiquity literature. Mm -hmm. And so that there's just it's very hard to shove maleness on her. Which is one of the things that we do is we read scripture based from our assumptions, based from our culture. And that's what makes some of these things hard because they're surprising to us because it's not what we've been taught. It's not what has been modeled for us in the church or like you were saying, reading some of, I I read Piper and Grudem as well, reading that, you know, tome, (laughs) which is a tough read. You know, that's what we had been taught and handed to us in new scholarship, which is not new. It's actually just uncovering what has always been there is showing us maybe we're seeing this not accurately. Maybe we need to look again. I want to talk about one of the things that you discuss in your book that I thought was really helpful is the household and how we understand the way the household was structured. Because a lot of times we hear, you know, especially in these prohibition passages, which I do want to mention, you don't ignore them. You go Mm -hmm. back to them at the end and you do unpack them in detail. And so friends, if you grab this book, know that you're also going to get that. But one of the things that you talk about is the household, because this notion that women should be in the home doing the domestic work of managing a home would look very different 
in the ancient world. So tell us a little bit about what that household looked like and what it could have meant. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the Roman world was patriarchal, which means that world was dominated by the pater familias, which means the father of the household. So, you know, pictures, images, the equivalent to commercials would showcase the traditional family with a male head of household that had legal, spiritual, social, monetary power. So the movies you've watched in the past about the Roman world are true that the default power was put in the hands of men. So women couldn't vote. Women couldn't hold office. Women were given less kind of social privileges. You know, men could sleep with whoever they want and women had to be at home and take care of the children, things like that. At the same time, that wasn't the only way that Rome looked at power. They also looked at social class. So I like to talk about two indexes for power. One is patriarchy. Males have more privilege and power. But then there's also status. There's also social status. So a high class person, think of like the first lady, right? You know, the first lady has a lot of power, right? In American society. And it was like that for a lot of high class women, the the, the wife of the emperor, the, the wives of senators, wives of other powerful people. But also, you know, you had women who could achieve things through just productivity and grit. And if they are a good businesswoman, Rome really allowed them to do their thing. Let's go back to the household, though. Even though men were, by default, placed in charge of the household, there was room for a woman head of a household if a man wasn't around. So we think that 20 to 30% of women didn't even have a husband for one reason or another. And we have some studies that one of every four households had a female head of household. And then the question is, what did the Christians do with that? And what's fascinating, Jody, is that we have these women that seem like independent women who become Christian, and they are put in charge of their own house church. The ancient churches, by and large, met in houses. We know that from Stephanus. We know that from Philemon. We know that from, you know, Stephanus is in First Corinthians. We know that from several other sources. And we'll find occasionally women who appear to be heads of a house church based on the language on their house. So for example, someone that most people have never heard of is Nympha, who's talked about in Colossians chapter four, just a little blip on the screen of Colossians. And Paul's exchange tells the church in Colossae to exchange letters with the church in Laodicea. And he talks about Nympha, who's a woman, and her church in her house church. And that's his language for church leader, right? Paul wasn't really into titles. Mm-hmm. He almost never uses a title. One of the times he does is with Phoebe, calling her diakonos, a minister. But he's not really into titles. So his way of talking about leadership tends to be subtle. And so he mentions Nympha and her house, house church. And we could also look at Lydia from the book of Acts, where Lydia, Lydia comes a believer. She and her household, which is a way of talking about her as the head of her household, become believers. And then the apostles go to jail and they get out. And where do they go? They go to her house. Mm-hmm. Why? Because believers have gathered there. Why are they gathering at her house? Because she's, as a leader of a household and a Christian, 
is going to have the ability to shepherd them, lead them, take care of them, that sort of thing. So what's interesting is we're used to talking about these men like Paul and Peter and Barnabas and Mark and others. There are these women that are quietly doing front lines, leadership, difficult getting Christianity off the ground leadership. They're not often given titles and credit, but they're doing the work. I think that's what I, that's what I want of the takeaways from my book to be. They're doing mm-hmm. the work. So the households are really important because they were the context for the church gathering. Mm. And women were sometimes in the roles of caring for these communities. Yeah. Thank you for unpacking that for us. I do want to talk, we've talked a lot about Paul and what he has to say about women, which is important because he also is the one that pinned the prohibition passage that we all turn to. But I I do want to talk about Jesus too and how he treated women. In particular, we meditated on Matthew 28, verses 5 through 10, this beautiful passage of Mary and the other Marys, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting way to, but these two Marys go to the tomb. They're looking for Jesus. They've come to just honor him and probably prepare his body to be in the tomb long term. And he is not there. And two things happen in that passage. The angels say to her, he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. Now go and tell the disciples. And then as they're going away, then Jesus meets them and he says the same thing to them. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Nijay, talk to us just a little bit about why this passage is so important with Jesus and women. I'm glad you brought this up because it is really important. We often miss it when we, you know, narrate and talk about these scenes of Easter weekend. I, you know, I think it's powerful just to know that women showed up for Jesus. The Gospel of John tells us the men were locked at inside afraid. Right. Yeah. And there's, and the women were afraid too. It says it right here mm-hmm. in this passage of Matthew, but they showed up. And what I love about this text in Matthew 28 is the angel says to the women, you know, Mary and Mary, do not be afraid. I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. It doesn't say exactly, you know, why they're there, but it says they came to see Jesus, right? And the other thing I think is important is it says he is not here for he's been raised. As he said, the angels, they do this in the gospel of Luke as well. They remind the women that he taught them. It's even clearer in Luke. He taught the women that he was going to raise from the dead. We sometimes, maybe not you, but when I was growing up, I just kind of thought the women were kind of tagging along. You know, they weren't officially invited, but they were allowed to kind of just listen in. But the angels, and it's again, it's clear in Luke. They almost reprimand the women for not remembering what Jesus had taught them. And I also like to say, how could it have been done differently? Jesus could have brought the he could have appeared to the disciples and said, "Go to the tomb and see the empty tomb." And even in the Gospel of John, he says to Thomas, "Check the holes in my hands, you know, and my feet, right, and my side." You know, so he has other ways of verifying it. Why go to this extent in this text of sending the women when Jesus is already going ahead to Galilee, right? When angels in the early part of the Gospels have no problem just appearing to people and telling them the truth. 
Mm-hmm. Why do this? I've, I don't know if there's a direct answer to that question, but I think he is investing in these women in the same way he did in Thomas, right? He says, I want you to be a hundred percent sure. Mm-hmm. I think he's challenging the faith of these women, right? He could have done it differently. He could, Jesus could have just appeared to the men. I'm sure because he's God, Jesus could have transported the men to the tomb. Right. You knew, could have done it differently. I think invested in these women, you know, it's interesting. Mary Magdalene in the Eastern church is referred to as isapostolos, which in Greek means equal in function to the apostles or sometimes apostle to the apostles. And what that means is just as the apostles were sent out by Jesus in faith to share the good news, so these women are sent out in faith to share the good news. And the epitome of the good news is the resurrection, right? The cross is the extent of Jesus' love. But the resurrection is all of that was true, right? Everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus is about is true. And now he's able to reign in view of that. And so I think these are important because women are sometimes put in the position like this of carrying some of the most precious information that we have. And Jesus entrusted her with that. Yeah, so good. Thank you for helping us see that. I love what you just unpacked, that just as he said, don't forget, Jesus taught you this. You Mm -hmm. were there. Your, your, that was valid. (laughs) I just, I love that. I had never seen that before. So thank you for pointing that out. Well, Nijay, this has been just a super encouraging conversation for me just to remember again, to be open to reading scripture as scripture is and not as we want to assume it is and to let the spirit lead us. And so thank you for making some space to help us see these things. My pleasure. Well, friends, I want to let you know that IVP is going to give us 30% off and free shipping of Nijay's book. So woohoo to that. There is a link in the show notes. You can find that with the code much more. So just head on into the show notes for that. Also, you will find all the ways to connect with Nijay on Twitter and read and follow his blog. So make sure you check that out as well. I do want to take just a quick second before we leave to thank the team of Life Audio for their partnership with us. And if you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in their network. Shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and even this one on scripture meditations and thoughtful conversations. And as always, I want to thank you for joining me and Nijay today on So Much More because... We really do believe Jesus has so much more to say to us, and we are creating space to listen. The content we feed our minds will eventually show up in our lives. If we feed our minds the lies and confusion of this world, our lives will begin to reflect worldliness. But if we feed our minds the truth of the gospel, our lives will start to reflect the heart and character of Jesus. I'm John Stonge, and each week I host the Dwell on These Things podcast, where we take a deep look at the Word of God and learn what it means to apply it to our lives. We don't skip difficult passages, and we don't gloss over the truth. If you're looking for a show that will put your mind in a better place and help you understand God's Word with more clarity, you can listen to the Dwell on These Things podcast at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcasting app.